Good morning and welcome everyone to Live Dharma Sunday for January 1st, 2017. So Happy New Year. And according to the Chinese animal calendar, 2017 is the year of the rooster. Or to be uh, PC, we could also say it's the year of the hen. Okay. But I like the rooster uh, because he's saying, wake up. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. I was talking to some kids last night and the cultural differences where animal sounds, you know, <clears throat> in English, we say dog says, bow wow. In Japanese culture, they say the dog says, one, one. And uh, the real funny one is the rooster. Of course, we we would say rooster says kakadulu, whereas in Japan they say koke koko. <laughs> it's a tough, funny sounding thing. Um, and you know what's another funny difference? Cultural differences is here in America, we United States. If you get together with people, and let's say it's a before the New Year's Day, and if you're not going to see them on New Year's Day, when you're partying, you might say, happy, you know, Happy New Year. They say, ah, Happy New Year. Well, in Japan, you do not say Happy New Year until it is New Year's. You don't say it before the New Year's to people. Okay? And we didn't know this. And uh, when we were living in Japan, we have our you know, Japanese natives, uh, new, uh, neighbors, and maybe uh, December 30th or 31st, we'd say, you know, pass, see them, happen to see them on the street or something, and, okay, yeah, uh, and then you have a happy new year. You look at us like, <laughs> you know, like we, we don't know the date. And uh, another very festive uh, Japanese cultural tradition at the end of the year, is called Mochi Tsuki. And Mochi is pounded, special rice that's pounded and sort of kneaded like uh, bread dough would be. And, in fact, in most households, uh, Japanese-American households, they have a mochi-making uh, machine, and it's very similar to a bread bread making machine. Um, the rice, mochi, the usual translation is a rice cake, but it's uh, not the usual idea of a cake. Because mochi is the rice, so it's very bland. Okay, and um, usually they add some kind of a sweet bean or some other kind of a uh, fruit or even peanut butter nowadays in the center. You get a you get your mochi, you pound it up, or see traditionally uh, in Japan and this tradition of uh, pounding mochi is carried on by some Japanese Buddhist temples. The end of the year, and it's a very festive time, and the members come, and it's done the old-fashioned way. The rice 
you put a big blob of it, sort of almost like a football-sized blob, in the middle of a, a mortar. Uh, it could be made of wood or it could be made of a stone. And then they have a wooden mallet, big one, and then pound it. Hit the rice, and then some there's a there's a, a assistant that's kneeling next to the there, and they kind of turn it a little bit, then pound it, turn, pound, turn, pound. Um, and after it's uh, properly pounded or kneaded, then it's you break off about a maybe or well, anywhere from a golf ball size to a, a baseball size. And then you, special assistants, they have, you know, cornstarch spread out on the table there so that the rice is sticky. And then they shape it into a little rice cake. And so you all be spread out. And like I said, sometimes you don't have to, but you can put some kind of a sweet, something sweet in the middle of it. If you want to see traditional mochi making, you could Google mochi, M-O-C-H-I, Tsuki, T is in Tom, S-U-K-I, mochi, Tsuki. Tsuki means to make. Okay. So if you make the making of mochi, and uh, you can see how it's done. Uh, <laughs> my favorite, my mom's favorite mochi story is it's also a custom, Japanese custom, to go visit um, friends and families, uh, and they make a lot of New Year, special New Year food. You see, <laughs> in Japan, there's no Christmas. <laughs> End of the year, New Year's is a is a big holiday. And many stores will be closed for three or four days. Okay. And if you don't know this, if you're a foreigner and you're living in Japan, the first new, end of the year, New Year's, you don't stock up and have no food. So what they do is they have these special uh, uh, wooden boxes, maybe two feet by two feet, and, they, and maybe you might have three of them stacked up, and they make special New Year food that's cold, and they store it into these little wooden boxes that are stacked up. And nowadays they might have fancy lacquer ones. But this is uh, because the stores are closed and you need to stock up on on food. And there's all kinds of special food. There's a lotus root. You've never seen a lotus root. It's a circular, and then it's got sort of holes in there. And you could look, you could, you could look through the hole, pick up a lotus root, and look through the hole, and you could see the future. Okay. Things like this. Okay. Or if you have uh, black beans, special black beans, okay. you eat this for good health in the coming year, and so forth. So, as I said, uh, you get the special New Year's food, and then guests come over. Sometimes um, men would go to several households okay, and visit and eat and drink, drink hot sake. Okay. Um, 
them in New Year on New Year's Day. And um, at my parents' place, uh, since my mom was a um, teacher, they would have, um, you know, a group of students, and sometimes they would invite some of them over for New Year's Day. And uh, uh, my mom would say that one time, um, Caucasian uh, person not associated with any Japanese culture or you know, background was invited as a guest, and they were eating and talking, and then they, the conversation turned to mochi, and my mom asked the lady, have you ever had mochi? And uh, she said, yeah, I'm not sure what that is, and then they were sort of talking about it, and then the lady said, oh, yeah, I know, I know what that is. That's the white stuff you chew and chew and nothing happens. <laughs> My mom's favorite. And adult. Um, first time I heard this, but my, my sister was carried on my mom's, our mom's uh, tea, way of tea. Uh, she's a teacher. She wrote uh, in the email, and she's signing off. And as the Japanese say, happy year-end. I thought that was kind of nice. Happy end of the year. Um, We did do the mochizuki at the relative's house this year. Made a lot of mochi. Um, You can... You can um, kind of uh, toast it on a dough. You have a special metal grate. You put your mochi there and get it toasted, and then you can eat it with uh, uh, sweet powder, or you could eat it with soy sauce and sugar mixed in. You could uh, eat it in a special hot soup. This is called ozoni. That's my favorite. I don't particularly care for the sweet stuff, but put that mochi in the the special broth with some little bit of vegetables and chicken maybe in there, but you and it gets real soft and and uh, mm, yum. We're gonna have that today later because that's a New Year's Day one of the New Year's Day specialties. But I love the ozoni type thing all year round. And nowadays, of course, you could make a lot of mochi and freeze it. It lasts a long time. And then I would just microwave it. It would get all soft. And if I don't have traditional ozoni broth, I'll just have some chicken noodle soup and put my mochi in there. Okay. I got another email from uh, one of our Bright Bonnet ministers, and uh, the husband had a hat on, and the hat said, keep calm. And the wife come in and said, this is the hat that Doug is going to be wearing for the next four years. This hat that said, keep calm, C-A-L-M, the A-L, was upside down. 
come. And I think this is a great thing. You 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 can act from that calm center with firm resolve and with a smile. Uh, keep going forward. Uh, one of our slogans, uh, motto or slogan of Bright Town Center is keep going. And not only just keep going, not with a grimace, but with a smile. Because you know that the Dharma is your rock. And in the passage uh, uh, that I wrote called Dharma is my rock, the opening line is, many things are happening in my life right now. I think that's a great opening line for everybody and anybody. It holds true. Many things are happening in my life right now. But I'm going to keep going forward with a smile. And the ending stanza is, things may not turn out exactly the way I like, but I will keep going forward with a smile because I know that Dharma is my rock. Okay, I'd like to introduce uh, our guest to give us a Dharma glimpse today. This is Wendy Sinyo, and she lives in upstate New York, near Rochester, and she was a member of our Lay Minister 2 group. Um, and right now we're on our on our ninth and 10th group. Um, so she has been a very staunch member of our Bright Down Lay Ministers Trailblazers group. And she's going to give us a Dharma Gems today. So Wendy Shinyo. Thank you, Reverend Coyo. And Happy New Year, and thank you for that wonderful opening and actual appropriate introduction to what I was going to talk about today and what I am going to talk about today. Um, uh, Like you insinuated uh, about things being turned upside down and approaching things without a grimace, um, I think I, like many others, have uh, uh, dealt with this end of the 2016 and the approach of 2017 um, with some trepidation. Um, So I wrote a glimpse today called New Year 2017, a Bodhisattva response. I approached this new year of 2017 with a mix of fear, anger, blame, sadness, confusion, and hope. I am filled with more tension about what is to come in 2017 than I've been at any other New Year time in my adult memory, due to what I, like so many, perceive to be disastrous election results this past November. Yet, at the same time, I am more committed to positive change, not changes like exercising more or losing weight, which both would be positive and helpful to me, but big changes in thinking, perspective, and dedicated involvement in hopes of being a positive force of good. In the face of expected major challenges to human rights and Mother Earth from what the recently elected seem to intend to do, I am committed to a more wholehearted involvement as a bodhisattva. You know, another of my teachers, Dharma Vidya, David Brazier Sensei, in his teachings on the Lotus Sutra, talks about how a bodhisattva is established in enlightened vision. 
A bodhisattva, he says, is one who stands against the current of the river, but what recognizes what is true and establishes herself in that in a call to change. So no matter how difficult the reality of our situation and no matter the anguish we feel over what is happening, it is what's happening. As Thanissara, a teacher I was reintroduced to through One Earth Sangha's Echo Sata program wrote, none of this is outside the Dharma. And as Reverend Koyo teaches from the Japanese expression of Shigati Ganai, it's happened. What can we do about it? So we must accept it. And this, I think, is exactly what the Buddha taught in the First Noble Truth. The truth that things happen and we don't like them. The truth that things change from good to bad no matter what we have or haven't done to cause it. This is the first thing the Buddha taught. And it's noble because there is bravery in facing the truth head on. Dharmavidya explained that a bodhisattva draws strength from Buddhas and that Buddhas are whatever enlighten us. A Buddha can be anything that helps us understand the actual truth of things as things as they are, which could in fact be things in your life falling apart. In other words, suffering or dukkha. So Dharmavidya says and teaches that dukkha is a Buddha. Suffering is a Buddha. Discontentment is a Buddha. So this Buddha in the dukkha, the Buddha in the suffering I and so many feel after the election, challenges us to a change of view, a change of perspective, and a change of heart. Having the strength of Buddhas behind us, we are called on to see beyond our own self-centered view, beyond blame beyond denial or anger, beyond separation from those around us. We're called on to see with the vision of a bodhisattva. With the Buddhas supporting us, we are now working for the Buddhas in the service of others, willing to be of service, willing to be useful and do what's needed, and to be conspicuous about that, facing the truth of our circumstances head on. But what can we do, we cry. What can we do about this? It's overwhelming. It's too much. It's not possible to change anything because the system is corrupt, we scream. Yet, in the Lotus Sutra, there is a focus on 80,000 bodhisattvas who were lay people. These lay people, these bodhisattvas, are praised in the sutra more than the monks and the nuns are praised. This speaks to a dynamic in the early Buddhist movement, a dynamic that I think is also at the very heart of the Bright Dawn Center and its lay ministry. These lay bodhisattvas are praised because they will be the ones that actually spread the message of the Dharma by being in the world and trying to do some good. Trying to do some good. I like that. That's something I can do. It's something I and all of you probably try to do every every day. Some good. So when we're hit with this level of suffering, remember that suffering itself is a Buddha guiding you, supporting you, energizing you, 
then try to do some good. The first good thing you can do is to fully feel the suffering you feel and the suffering of those around you. Then use the Dharma to move beyond the fear, move beyond anger and blame, and create a path leading others to that same place beyond the hurt. It's that understanding and motivation, according to Thanissara, that can move Dharma practice beyond a personal introversion and quietism to an active acceptance that can indeed transcend our suffering over challenging circumstances. Now, how that looks in my life is, as I said in my opening, was first shock, then a mix of fear, anger, blame, sadness, confusion, and only recently, some hope. I have stayed far too long in the anger and blame phases, sometimes moving through sadness and confusion, but only to return back to anger and blame. What helped me move a bit beyond anger and blame and empowered me in this new bodhisattva dedication was an understanding that I hadn't let myself fully feel the suffering I was feeling. So I couldn't move on to accept it. I saw that although acceptance is transcendence, as Reverend Koyo teaches, um, and although that teaching helped me find a sense of peace so many times before, this time somehow everything felt different. This time I felt a stronger need to do something. Yet thinking about how I supposedly had accepted and transcended things in the past, but now couldn't, pointed out to me that the way I thought as I was accepting things before was the weak way, a way of resignation or avoidance, a getting rid of rather than a strong warrior acceptance. I was trying to quickly move on, to get beyond it, get over it, saying I had accepted, I had transcended. I wasn't taking the warrior approach of facing it head on. I was dodging and weaving. I wasn't looking the challenge in the eye so that I could see what I actually could do. I couldn't consider other possibilities and ways of dealing with the new reality. I couldn't look for and find what is best because although I claimed acceptance and transcendence, I was still focusing on how awful everything was. I saw that when I thought I had accepted previous challenges in my life, many times I had been spiritually bypassing. That place where you say, yep, I sat with this. I meditated on it. I'm good. I'm okay. That's avoiding shock, fear, and sadness. It's rushing to an insight, a so-called insight, without feeling it as, an interconnected, as interconnected to your own personal difficulties and negative emotions. It's a disassociated state of acceptance rather than a truly embodied and integrated act of active acceptance. This disassociated state, I think, happens because it's hard to be with the fear, the anger, the blame, and the sadness. We, we want to get rid of it as fast as we can. It's hard to be with the personal stories and feelings and hard to sit in that don't know mind because that's where we really are most times. I don't know what to do with it. It's hard to sit there for any length of time hard to commit to that skillful dance of not knowing, but yet action in the Dharma before action in the world. I had heard the term spiritual bypassing before, and it was mentioned in the final session of One Earth Sangha's Echo Sattva program, prompting me to look at my own behavior. Luckily, I had been participating in the One Earth Sangha's Echo Sattva training program with fellow Bright Dawn Lay Ministers Michael Shinya Lawrence and William Toyo Holland since October 16th. 
And I also was facilitating the Bright Dawn Lay Minister Class 9 since the October 23rd. So I say I was lucky because it was right at the time of the election, and I had nothing, I had no choice but to focus on the Dharma as part of these commitments. So I was escorted by these commitments to the dance of not knowing yet action in the Dharma. You know, when systems and groups disappoint or frustrate us, when family and friends express thoughts and feelings that cause disillusionment and feelings of loss, when seemingly dependable external circumstances suddenly become unstable and unpredictable, as Reverend Coyo just said in the introduction, there is only one refuge, the Dharma. The Dharma is fully and firmly anchored in this first teaching of suffering. And if you remember that suffering itself is a Buddha, it can awaken you to a new level of understanding and a new level of commitment if you allow it to fill you up completely. From the introduction to her book, Time to Stand Up, an Engaged Buddhist Manifesto for Our Earth, Sinisara writes, Andrew Harvey asks us to follow our heartbreak. That is, scan your conscience for the issue that keeps you awake at night. Then get up in the morning with the intention of doing something to mend that one broken thing. This is a good place to start our journey, a journey already modeled by the Buddha. At the end of the day, the essence of the Buddha's message is, you can do this. Together, not alone, we can bend the course of history. So what does this have to do with New Year, you ask? I think all too often we look to the New Year as the Pure Land, that beautiful, magical place of jeweled trees and no suffering, which is opposite we think, to the suffering world we live in now, opposite of the year we left behind. Yet, as Titnut Han writes, the pure land is now or never. The pure land and the Saha world, our world of suffering, are one. In the smaller pure land sutra, the, the Buddha does see our human suffering, but he also sees how we try to run from it. Yet it is our suffering that enables us to see happiness. To be happy, we must learn how to negotiate suffering. We must remember that understanding and compassion only grows on the ground of suffering. To think that there is a place of no suffering is an illusion. To think that the new year will be like the pure land is an illusion. But to understand and integrate our suffering in a dedication to doing something good is to establish this pure land here and now. The pure land is in our minds. It's in a new perspective. It's seeing the jeweled trees in the skeleton branches of winter. I wish you that new perspective. I wish you a new mind for the new year. And, if, and with that, I think together we will create a pure land. As we say in bright dawn, keep going. May it be so. Gosh, May it be so gusto indeed. Um, I saw a nice uh, slogan that said, Happy New Year, New You. <laughs> yeah. uh, nice phrasing. And uh, since is transcendence, it's not that acceptance will lead you to transcendence. The acceptance itself is Transcendence. I remember my, uh, you know, Japanese people are 
short in height. And let's say you're interested in basketball, but you're short. You're good. Good player, skilled, but you're short. And so what are you going to do? Your shortness? Regret your shortness? Live a a life was that saying, oh, if only, if only I was, you know, 6'5 or so, I'd be a, I'd be a professional NBA basketball player. Oh, gee, how come I'm short? You don't accept your shortness. You fight it. You regret it. You, but if an enlightened mother or parents says, hey, you be the best short player you can be. You accept your shortness, the reality of what it is. That's healthy instead of denial or live a life of regret. The acceptance is transcendence and go forward fully, completely. Um, There's a nice phrase that says, in a dark time, the eye opens. And it's important to say it's not in spite of the darkness that the eye opens. It's because of the darkness that the eye opens. If you if you go to a movie theater in the afternoon and dark theater, you can't see anything until your eyes become dark adapted and your pupils expand to let in the existing light in, in the dark theater. You know, otherwise, you're going to trip and <laughs> you try to get your seat right away. You're going to stumble over people and cause a lot of trouble. Okay. So in a, another kind of dark time, the spiritual eye opens. Uh, not in spite of the difficulties and suffering, but because of it. That's what's meant by suffering and difficulties is the Buddha. Now, when the Shinyu mentioned David Brazier, who's a teacher in Great Britain, I met him in the 90s when I was a minister at the Buddhist Temple of Chicago, and uh, I didn't know him, but uh, he was in town to give a, a kind of a retreat workshop, and He dropped in to visit the temple on a weekday afternoon. And uh, he was in the our hondo or chapel in the back looking at our service books. And, and so I met him and I said, uh, well, would you like to, uh, I asked, you know, we had talked about each other's background. And then I said, well, let's go next door to the uh, meditation uh, place and you know, I'll show you around a little bit. And as we walk through the uh, hallway, we have a bulletin board where we post notices and things. And I happened to notice there was a flyer there that had been we had received in the mail that was publicizing his uh, retreat workshop. And I stopped and I looked at it and I, and I said, and it said on there, David Razor, so and so, a teacher, Buddhist teacher of deep wisdom, and you know, and I playfully said, hey, it says here, deep wisdom. And you know what he said? I was very impressed. 
He said, well, the deeper you go, you know, the darker it gets. <laughs> oh, boy. I've also, I want to leave you with a nice uh, metaphor that I like. And this is the lotus in the muddy pond. From If you approach this dualistically, what does that mean? It means there's good and bad. Then they're completely opposites. Uh, teaching is, well, the lotus is growing in the mud, but it grows above the muddy pond and blossoms white, pure, beautiful blossom. Now, the mud could be the external situation, the society we live in, those circumstances, and also it could it could mean your inner emotional turmoils. But regardless of inner or outer, internal, external turmoils, the lotus's roots are in the mud and gets its sustenance from the mud. If you have pure <laughs> pure water clean water. There's no life in there. It's not organic. No mud, no no lotus. Not a whole dynamic. It's because of the mud that the lotus can grow and keep going and transcend. That's all for today's broadcast. Till next time, keep going and you have a very beautiful Thank you.